Good morning, everyone. So I'll provide a little bit of context just to remember where we are in our study. We discussed in the spring, we talked about the really big concept of God, who he is. We explored the book of Genesis, which helped us learn about God. And then we spent time in a series focusing specifically on creation, which again was connected to God and all tied up in in Genesis. Then we moved to discuss who Jesus is. We followed it up by spending time in the book of John, which helped us understand more about who Jesus is. We also found a lot of connections to Genesis and to who God is and to creation. Um, So you could... I think uh, as individuals, as believers, we probably know this isn't true, but it would be easy to say those were that was the category of like all interesting trivia. Who is God? Who is Jesus? It's just knowledge. We can look it up in an article. We can read it. But kind of where we are right now, where Park started last week, is moving into the part where it moves from interesting information to essential knowledge. Then now we're moving to the place where this knowledge has to have application in your life. And by knowing it, you're either choosing to accept it or reject it. Um, It has very real implications. So Park talked last week about new humanity, about what it means to be recreated, to be reborn, to be remade, um, as we were supposed to follow closeness to God in Genesis and the creation story. um, Now we have the opportunity to actually be remade and fulfill that original purpose. Um, so following up Park's discussion about new humanity, today we're talking a little bit about heaven and uh, tying the connection together a little bit about new heaven and new earth. What are we being remade for? And learning, looking ahead a little bit to that ultimate remaking and recreating of everything. So we'll spend some time discussing that, and then we'll follow up with uh, two thematic lessons next week and on Christmas about the water of life and the tree of life. Um, which are all closely connected and referred to in the book of John and connected to all of these images as well. So there's just a lot of interconnectedness, a lot of interesting imagery. Um, so if I, if I have two lesson styles, it's one that I read something, find a piece that the spirit gives me and like really travel all over and understand what that means as much as I can. Um, and then my other lesson style, when I just really don't know and I feel like I can't get deep enough is to just use a lot of scripture. Um, which actually often ends up taking more time to hunt them down and more time to go through them, but is uh, irrefutable. If I read a scripture to you, I didn't get it wrong. I just read the scripture to you in a sense. It's a little bit safer that way. Um, I didn't have a lot of time to prepare a lesson, so this is kind of in between those. Um, I'm actually using the guide from the video that we're going to watch. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend a little bit of time reading scriptures and briefly discussing some of the themes and topics that will be summed up in the video. So when we watch it, it will be a little bit of a visual recap that helps us remember some of these themes and these lessons. So um, I'll start off just with a question. What? Uh, and feel free to join in and give some answers. There's some common ones. What are images that come into your mind when you think of heaven? Um, heaven. Heaven. Yeah. Harps. Even yeah, harps. Right. Fresh air. Well, that's a good one. No pain. No pain. No worries. God's presence. God's like, presence. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I think of adventure and imagination. Yeah. Yeah. The mother and father. Yeah. So, do, would it be um, obviously 
Some of those ideas come from knowing the scriptures. Kate's answer is pretty much right on target for today's lesson. Um, but some of those other ones, like uh, I think Dave was was helpful, and he threw out the image that we know from you know culture in the past several hundred years, harps and clouds and all of those things. So they come from a broad range of sources. Not all of them are very accurate. I told Dwayne, I'll lead it off so Dwayne doesn't wonder so much, because I don't think they explicitly say it in the video, but I did, was listening to some discussion, and... Uh, so we'll just talk, I guess if we summed up the idea of heaven, it's fair to say as believers that when we die, we go to heaven, right? <laughs> Except that nowhere in the Bible is the phrase go to heaven ever used. Heaven is not a place we go to. It's not ever stated that way in the Bible. So we'll learn a little bit more about what it actually says about heaven and about how all of this happens um, as we go through the lesson. So that's the phrase, <laughs> Dwayne, that uh, um, that I that I mentioned. So um, you can, if you just want to, if you don't want to sit and wonder and miss everything else, you can just think about the fact that when God created us, He created us in Eden in creation. In a lot of ways, it wasn't that supposed to be what we picture heaven. That was the purpose. He didn't create us to go to heaven. He created us in Eden on Earth to be there in his presence. So just think about that as we talk about what heaven really is and what it means to us. Um, in the Bible, the word heaven that's used a lot of times can, it can mean a few different things. In a lot of references, especially when we hear that creation story, it refers to the sky. Um, the imagery that the era that the biblical writers in the Old Testament lived just looked, they described things literally as they saw them. So when you looked up, you saw a dome a blue dome over the heaven, over the earth, and that was the sky or the heavens. Um, has anyone ever seen the Truman Show TV show? Picture, picture that, you know, the reveal at the end where he's literally in. It's a painted sky with lights and stars in that surface. That's really what they pictured. They didn't have any method to see or imagine what was quite beyond that. Um, so a lot of times it refers to the sky. In Psalm 68, 34, ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel. And whose power is in the skies. Remember in the creation story, one of the realms that God separated and, ex and defined was the heavens or the skies. And then later he filled the heavens or the skies with birds, with creatures. Um, there's also some deeper imagery there where he's talking about the celestial bodies. And those are literal bodies, but also are often used to refer to symbols of spiritual beings. Um, in Psalm 148.13 is an, a, another reference where we hear it referred to as the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. There we kind of see there's even more layers. It's above earth and heaven. God's majesty is even greater than heaven. Um, so even if it is a place, it's not enough to contain God. It can also refer to God's space, in this case, using the sky more as a metaphor for God's transcendence over all things. If we go to Deuteronomy, we'll hear a reference to, to that in Deuteronomy 26. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. So there we see that it's a place where God is, and he's looking down. So he's transcendent, and he can see everything from that place. Paul 
also says in Corinthians that our citizenship is in heaven. Yeah. Um, uh, do, do you have my sheet over there? Okay. All right, good, because I'll need it later to get that exact reference. <laughs> uh, Psalm 115, 2 to 3 is another point where we hear the nations. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Again, it's kind of separating. He's in the heavens, so he can do whatever he wants. It's building that separation and that transcendence in the heavens. Um, it also it contrasts earth and land with the space that God is in. In Psalm 115, just a few verses later in verse 16, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. So we can see in that space there that we have the earth, but God's up in heaven. But there is also recognition that God isn't literally located in the sky, um, that it's a metaphor, it's an image, but also that his presence actually exceeds heaven and fills all of creation. First uh, Kings in chapter eight, verse twenty-seven. God indeed will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? I think we referenced that just in the past few weeks. Finish building the temple and then say, "Well, this isn't good enough. <laughs> all of this work and all this effort, but this can't actually contain you." When I look around, all of the world, all of the heavens can't even contain you, God. And Jeremiah echoes that a little bit in Jeremiah chapter 23. In verse 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? It's kind of a, almost a contrasting way. Not only is God so big, there's not even the smallest, darkest place that you can get to that's not going to have God's presence. So those are some of the different ways that the word heaven can be used in the Bible. So they are depicted as distinct dimensions of divine space and human space, but they also are depicted as overlapping. So we'll just look at a couple points where they overlap. If we turn to Genesis 28... We'll read a few verses here from a story that you're probably familiar with. Starting in verse 10, um, we're going to talk about Jacob when he fell asleep and he had a dream at Bethel or Bethel. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So there we see God represented to Jacob a physical place where his presence 
was manifested almost in a higher, higher way than Jacob, probably than Jacob had ever experienced in his life before. And he had a glimpse of those realms intercrossing because he saw the, the messengers of God, the spiritual beings moving back and forth between the realms. Moses had a, an encounter similar to that in Exodus chapter 3. You can probably guess which one this is. In verses 1 through 6, we'll read. This was after Moses had set up the first, uh, he was in the second 40 years of his life, um, spending time in the wilderness as a shepherd. And he was keeping flock for his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So there we see Moses encountering God in a physical place, but we can see that God's glory was surpassing what's revealed in creation. And Moses had to hide his face. Moses was told to take off his feet. Um, the imagery of the fire, which we'll see later in the New Testament, um, that God's presence was manifested there. Moses was on another mountain when he had uh, an encounter in Exodus chapter 19. This happened on Mount Sinai in verses 9 through 12. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. So if you remember the creation story, you remember Genesis on a hill in a garden. Whenever man, whenever at that time Adam and Eve, on behalf of us, reflecting our wishes, rejected God's way and chose to take their own path, you remember they were sent out of the garden. And you remember those cherubs, those what would certainly be terrifying creatures for us to witness, not like the cartoon depictions we see, had some kind of flaming swords to push them out of the garden and stand guard so they could no longer come back into that presence of God. They could no longer come back into that space. So now we see here this mountaintop where God's telling Moses, I'm going to come and you're going to get to see me. But Moses had to set up a perimeter and say, okay, guys, don't come here. Like you're going to die. And even Moses, if you know the story, when he was in God's presence, it was God just gave him a small glimpse of his presence. And it was enough to terrify Moses and enough to secondhand really terrify everyone else in the camp when Moses came down from the mountain. So we can kind of see God was present with us in person. We broke the trust with him, and we can see the story unfolding here. These parts happened before there was a temple where God set aside a place for man to interact with him. We can see that story coming where heaven is returning back to earth in small pieces at a time. Um, and specifically, now we'll go to the temple and we'll see those points where heaven and earth overlap in the temple spaces. We already discussed that the garden was kind of that arch 
ar- uh, archetype of a place where a temple presence would happen, where God could commune with man. Man received the orders from God. Man in, uh, interacted with the world on God's behalf and with God on the world's behalf. Well, we've discussed in some of our previous lessons about the royal priesthood. They were fulfilling God, their purpose for God. Um, then we read in Exodus and First Kings, we read about the temples being described in detail, and we see some of those images reflecting the Eden story and the creation story. Um, so in First Kings, we'll read a few verses from First Kings uh, chapter 6 and 7 just to demonstrate those. In First Kings chapter 6, I'll stop our reading verse 11 to 13. Um, you can just listen for things here. The word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you're building. If you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Now, it's not quite as simple as one tree, one command to avoid one tree. But you can hear a little bit of the reflection here. Solomon's building a house for God's presence And God is saying, if you obey, you will remain in my presence. Now, if you're alert and you've read some of those verses we've used in the book of John recently, you hear Jesus saying the same thing, that if you abide in me, if you keep my commandments, as I abide in the Father, he's echoing the same theme. We see that one of the keys to God's presence is obedience. We have to extend the trust to enter his presence. We have to trust that he wants what's best for us and that he is he's doing what's right for us. So that's kind of a, um, an underlying philosophical um, detail from this lesson. But then if we uh, scroll ahead here to chapter 20 or verse 29 to 36, we'll hear some very specific images. So just picture this building around the walls of the house. Talking of a craftsman, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house, he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. When I hear that description, I hear detail. I hear a craftsman who's excellent in his work and I can almost imagine the beautiful place he's creating. Again, that reminds me of the story in Eden, the story of creation where God brought order to the world and he handed that task off to man. Here, where there was nothing, Solomon was directing and his craftsmen were bringing order and space and separating one space from another space and access ways between them. And they were filling it with the beautiful material from the work from creation, cedar, olive wood, gold, stone, cypress, engravings uh, throughout here, engravings of pomegranates, lilies, engravings of palm trees and lions. It's just an amazing space. That's all reflecting creation. Um, just a few verses later in chapter seven, verses 23 through 26. A little bit more of creations reflected here. He made the sea of cast metal. It was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim and five cubits high, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Under its brim were gourds for 10 cubits, encompassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. 
It stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a handbreadth, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup. Like the flower of a lily, it held 2,000 baths. So again, we just see even the sea is reflected here, which throughout the Bible imagery is often used as a source of chaos and danger and threat. Um, and they're even reflecting that here. It, that reminds me of our creation series where God, um, where the psalmist is calling out and uh, celebrating how God is in all of creation. And he lists the storms and the lightning and the thunder, even the things that we would say, well, I'm sure that's just evil infringing, but God is still present in all of it. The sea itself, just picture that massive place with the oxes all cast metal. It's just amazing to see the imagery that's carried through here. But now why was the temple created? We, we implied it just a little bit ago. In Exodus 25, uh, verse 22, we hear very clearly explain, this is God speaking, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So as God's creating this physical space that he can bring the divine space into, he's using the temple to recreate what was intended in Eden. Solomon also acknowledged that God's presence actually fills out beyond the temple. First Kings 8 uh, verses 27 through 30, he makes that reference about the temple being inadequate to contain God. Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So it's interesting. You hear he's, he's asking God that when people are praying towards this temple presence, that he's listening from the temple presence. But the second part there at the, uh, of verse 30, he also says, listen from your heaven, heavenly dwelling place as well. Be listening when we can't pray towards this temple. And he's acknowledging God is everywhere, even if he's chosen specifically to manifest himself in one place. Um, we learn a little bit more about the temple presence and about what it takes to be in God's presence um, because animal sacrifice was established as a means for dealing with Israel's sin um, so that God's justice could be satisfied and combined with his mercy. In Leviticus 16, we learn that the day of atonement, two animals are sacrificed for the sins of Israel. The priest confesses Israel's sin and then places it symbolically on the animal before the uh, at the sacrifice. And then in Leviticus 17, verse 11, For the life of a creature is in its blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement. So we've witnessed our separation from God's presence, God developing a place on earth where we can come back into his presence. We see the cost of coming into his presence. And then we move into really the fulfillment of that story when we get into the New Testament. Jesus is described as the temple where heaven and earth overlaps, as well as the sacrifice that's offered for the sin of people. Jesus 
uh, well, let's in John 1.14, see if you hear a little bit of that echo that we just discussed in Exodus. So if we run to John 1.14, you may remember very clearly from our lesson a few months ago. Sorry, got the wrong chapter. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, um, and let's move ahead here. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes before me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fulfillment we have all received grace upon grace. And in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. We hear that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we had the temple that was the dwelling place, but now we hear that God has come to dwell with us outside of that temple place. On the banks of the Galilee, walking the streets of Capernaum, the temple was now present right there. And then Jesus interacts with the temple as well in uh, John chapter 2. Jesus causes a little bit of a disturbance after he enters the temple, throws the tables over, lets livestock out, accuses the people working in the temple of being thieves. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture that the word Jesus had spoken. In Colossians 1.19, we hear about the fullness of God's presence again. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And just a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 9, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now we're starting to see a connection go beyond Jesus. If you listen to that in verse 9, and you have been filled in him. So the whole fullness of God's presence lives in Christ, and he has filled us and is our head and our authority. So now we're starting to make those connections. He's providing the spirit, his presence to us. And if we obey him, make those steps back, we can see the same thing that the temple was approached. And in Eden, we can live and dwell in his presence. And uh, let's just read, John, Jesus was also the sacrifice. I think we all know that part of the story very well, but we'll read a few of those verses. John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in Paul also uses this imagery in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
We just referenced the presence of Jesus living in his followers through the Spirit. That's where the church really becomes a temple where God's space and human spaces overlap. In Acts 2, 1 through 4, we hear about the church at Pentecost, first witnessing this indwelling of the Spirit. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. If you know the story of the temple dedication, and the, you remember the fire coming down to the temple as, a, as an image of God's presence and God's glory. And we see that happen here on the followers of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 also talks about the church as the temple. In verses 19 through 22, So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there we hear that the church has become the temple and that we as individuals are stones in that temple. We are helping to build that presence. And you can see now that imagery, the reference that God isn't contained in a single building. You can see now that building is being spread across the entire globe through all of his believers. Now the church, in a sense, the temple is the world itself. The temple has become creation through his, through his followers. And so let's look ahead a little bit to that promise about new creation, new heaven, and new earth. So new creation is a rejoining of heaven and earth, which as we can see, and as Jesus indicated to us, is already happening. When Jesus told us, you're already living in the kingdom of God. If you've accepted me, if you accept him, you're already dwelling in the kingdom of, of the new heaven and the new earth, even if... Through your eyes, you see that it hasn't physically happened. We realize that what we see with our eyes is often a deception, and it doesn't show the whole heart. Jesus looked at the heart of the heart of men. He could see the heart of the issue. So Jesus, Peter, and Paul all spoke about God's future restora- restoration as the ultimate goal of our Christian hope. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 19, uh, verse 28. Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then in Acts 3, 21. Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That phrase in there, the restoration of of all things which God spoke. And then in Romans 8.21, we also hear Paul make this reference. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We often use, we often use the term or the language as believers of being sinners who've been set free. 
We use that imagery of a slave who's broken from bondage. But I love here this imagery of the creation itself being set free free from his bondage. We often think of ourselves very individualistically, very selfishly. So even as humans, even as man, we think of our sin in Eden affecting us. But the reality is what we did had massive consequences and in fact brought bondage on all of creation because everything that God designed was now corrupted through our actions. Um, So I love that image that creation itself will be set free. So the ultimate destiny is resurrection life in the new creation is being dead to our old self, being reborn in our new self and living in that new creation. Let's look at Philippians chapter three, verses 20 and 21 right at the end of the chapter, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So when that judgment authority that's been handed to Jesus, when he takes that and uses it in its full power, He will transform all of our physical corrupt bodies into the glorious body that he now has, which is it's another it's another point where we see Jesus totally reversing our concept of everything, because we recognize at Christmas time that he, in a sense, you could say he debased himself. He demoted himself to go from the spiritual son of God to live, live in flesh to live here with us in this corrupt world, broken, suffering all of the challenges, the very real threat of physical pain and physical death, the emotional interaction. But we see that Jesus consecrated our physical presence really by, by, um, by carrying it on himself. Because now we see that as he carries that glorified body, but he's still carrying that physical body that he adopted to live with us. And now having a body like him is the glorious goal and the glorious hope. So he's just kind of spun us all the way around and realized that glorious body is probably a lot like it's supposed to function when he originally created us in Eden. It's just a great point to see him turn everything upside down again. And then in Romans 6, 4, and 5, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So we hear there, we're baptized into his death, buried with him so that we could raise with him as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. The last verse we'll read about this topic. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority, and every power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. 
But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So here we hear Jesus taking that authority, defeating death and turning back to the father with the mission accomplished and returning and restoring order authority and obedience and power all to the original design that God intended. There's a lot of imagery. We've talked a little bit about it in Genesis and Exodus, the temple imagery, how that all reflects the Garden of Eden. So this new creation is calling back to the original creation. And then the Bible ends in Revelation uh, 21 and uh, 22, talking about God's heavenly presence being rejoined and integrated with earth. Earth. We'll just read a few verses uh, from Revelation 21. Let's go to verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven of God, out of heaven from God. And then a few verses later in, chat, in verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So we see at that new creation moment when Jerusalem is restored on the mountain again, when God's presence comes back to its original purpose, its original depth, there's no temple. There's no need for a temple because Christ is the temple and he's made all of us stones in his temple. So we see that fulfillment of his presence coming back. So if we, if we have to picture heaven, we can see the ultimate conclusion is that everything is restored back to the beginning, back where it all started and was intended to be. And so that's really, when we, when we use the term go to heaven, we're really describing heaven coming to us. That's really the plan that God has is to create things and bring it to us. Jesus has already brought that to our hearts. He's brought that to our spirit through his sacrifice and through his presence in the spirit and he's promised us that physically when it happens, he's going to bring that back as well. So we will see the new creation. We see Jerusalem coming down. We see a place that doesn't need a temple because Christ is there. There are just a few verses. If we aren't going to heaven when we die, there are just a few, very few times that really we hear that discussed in the Bible. Um, but they all use similar phrases. If we go to Luke 23, because if you're just asking yourself, okay, that's great, but what am I going to do? for a hundred years or a thousand years after I die, I want to make plans. Um, if we go to Luke 23, we can hear a little bit about that in Luke 23 verses 42 and 43. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's talking to the thief on the cross next to him. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me. So you've probably heard that phrase in the church, a way to try to politely say that someone has died and not feel too harsh. We say he's gone to be with the Lord. That's the phrase that's actually used in the New Testament, gone to be with the Lord. So here Jesus is saying, you will be with me. In Philippians 1, 21, through uh, 24, Paul is saying, for me, to live is Christ and die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. 
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So there we see him at that point where he's feeling like his life is about to end. He's about to be executed for his, for his preaching, for his faith. He's identified, if that happens, I will be with Christ. Whatever all those other little details are, I'm going to be with Christ. Um, and actually, that's preferable for me. Paul says that would actually be pretty great. Um, and in 2 Corinthians 5, we hear an echo of that. So we are always of good courage in verse 6. We know that while we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We hear the two options there, the two, the discussion. While we're here in the physical presence, we have that separation, that real physical separation from God's, from Jesus's physical being. But when we die, we will be there. We will be united. We will be with him. And that's what gives us the courage and the hope. So as a believer, what we're looking towards first is to be reunited with Christ, to be with the Lord. That's our desire. And Jesus has made it clear, even though it's, it's troubling and difficult to do in this world, we already have that. We can already be there, even though we still have to deal with all of our flaws and all of this broken, bonded world. We can be with Christ. When we die, we get to be with him more completely. And he's promised us that he will take care of all of these things that we see, that this world will be remade, that heaven will come to earth, that his presence will come to earth in completeness, and that he will rule in complete authority through his son, and that we will also be part of that, that we're the stones in the temple that fills the earth. Um, so that's the promise of heaven that we learn in the Old and New Testament is pointing to. That's what we're looking forward to. And the Christmas season, when we look at the Christmas story, what we're really seeing is, just, is part of that take place, that moment where heaven comes to earth. And now we're waiting for that to happen again in more completeness. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here, there's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world 
apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. 
the focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again.